Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited. We have an amazing founder today. He's been building and scaling a really interesting business that started, you know, first, you know, really touching on the service side and then figuring out how to really productize it and, and how to scale it up. And and they've been at it an incredible journey, remarkable. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alex Romager. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So originally born in Kentucky, and you were there in the middle of the woods. So uh, what was life growing up there? Uh, it's true. I'm from Kentucky originally. I grew up on top of a big hill. We lived on maybe 100 acres. That was mostly uh, woods. And so that's where you could find me pretty much every day growing up. I was running around in the woods, and I ended up uh, taking a little section of those woods and building tree houses. But not just one tree house. I built a whole neighborhood of them. I ended up building, I think, nine different tree houses by myself in the woods. My grandpa gave me a bunch of lumber and uh, old, you know, a bunch of nails and tools. And I just kind of dragged it all up in the woods and started uh, my love of building things. And that still persists today. That's why I went to engineering school and, and I think why I uh, have done startups my whole career as well. And how, how was that transition? Because here you were exposed to the love for problem solving, right? For building those houses. But how did that translate or shift into like engineering on the engineering side? Like, you know, okay, you know, I got this. I love this. Let's, you know, really take it to the next level on the problem solving side. Yeah, I think my, my I think what I noticed is that my interest when I was putting together one of these treehouse projects was I actually didn't enjoy the finished product as much as I loved the process. And so I remember asking my dad one day what I should do uh, when I was a grown-up because I loved building treehouses so much and I knew that wasn't a job. Uh, and he told me I should be a civil engineer. And so that's actually what I technically am. I have a couple of degrees in civil and structural engineering. And, uh, and I've always maintained this passion for building things, but much more so the process, you know, the imagination of how can I turn this tree with a, you know, this non-standard set of branches and different challenges. How do you get into the tree? What can, how can you craft the house? Where do you go to make the right platform? There are all these unique challenges. And that was what I found myself really falling in love with. 
once I built the treehouse, I you know played it a couple times, and then it was like, let's go find, let's go find another tree and do it again because I love the process of building. So for me, going to engineering school and starting companies and building something new is just a different version of that same process that I've been in love with since I was six or seven years old. That's amazing. So in your case too, you went to University of Louisville there in Kentucky, so you didn't go far from home. Uh, but, but, but this allowed you, this gave you the opportunity to, to meet your co-founder. So what was that you know, process of, of meeting them? And, and then how did you guys go about you know, thinking, hey, you know, like maybe there's something that we could do together? Yeah, my co-founders and I all started in uh, engineering school at Louisville at the same time. So it started out pretty simple. We were in a bunch of classes together all those you know, entry-level calculus and physics courses and the engineering program. So we were just friends. You know, we did homework together. Two of us were right next to each other in our freshman dorm. So we were friends. We hung out a lot. But you know, I think at that point, I had already been in, interested in being an entrepreneur and owning my own business. But I had no idea what that meant. I really didn't know any entrepreneurs. I assumed that only you, know, you had to be 40 years old and have 10 or 20 years of experience before you could ever own your own company. So I thought of it as this, you know, distant future thing I might like to do one day. And I didn't think that much more about it. And so it was really interesting that, you know, after, you know, some, some period of time, maybe it was a couple years into the engineering program, we went on these co-ops or internship programs. And we work for, this was part of our, our engineering school. You work for a real world uh, business making real money, you know, operating, going to the job every day. Uh, it was structured into the program. So you did three semesters of these co-ops. And it's supposed to help inspire you to, you know, build relationships with those employers to then get a, a job at one of them, ideally right as you graduate. But for us, it had the opposite effect. We saw, you know, how these companies actually operated from the inside and the type of work that we would do when we finished our uh, undergrad program. And we thought, you know, oh, is this it? Like, is this what being a professional engineer really means? And so I think that started to really coalesce this idea that maybe there was something more creative and more dynamic that we could do with our time. And we started at that point working on building our own company in the background. That's very interesting. And, you know, one thing that, that I find amazing is that the three of you guys, you know, really had the... Similar backgrounds, because typically when, when you go for co-founders, I mean, you try to see, you know, like uh, who, you know, can cover what. So in this case, you had similar backgrounds. So how did you go about dividing and conquering? Yeah, that's a really good question. It, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to say that it was incredibly intentional at the very beginning uh, when we were, you know, deciding to go into startups together. But maybe it was more intuition driven. We're actually very complementary to each other from a skills trade-off perspective. Even though we all have technical backgrounds, um, I was always the very uh, sales and uh, business development and marketing focused one of the three of us, um, and and that was my core interest. So I was ba you know technical based, but very interested in let's just call it business development. Another one of us was uh, so interested in uh, legal and. Uh, compliance and regulatory that he actually went to law school for a little bit and passed the patent bar and still today does a lot of that work um, in our insurance product, which is 
everything having to do with the Department of Insurance, regulatory infrastructure, legal and compliance, uh, all the regulatory affairs. And that's kind of his special skill set. And then the third helps run our people team. That's Dan on, on amongst our co-founders. And, and his superpower is being able to read and understand people really well. And so he's helped build many of our teams at Beam, uh, focuses on organizational design and HR and people function. And so we all have this technical home base that we share a lot of interest in, but we each wanted to operate in a slightly different arena. And that's allowed us to adapt and uh, always be focused on uh, taking our unique skills and then just molding them to whatever the business needs at any given time. So in, in your case, you came out of university and uh, you know meeting your co-founders, but you guys had no idea of dental. I mean, obviously you landed there, you had people in the family and friends that were involved to a certain degree with it. Uh, and you started thinking about this more like from a service perspective, but how was that transition going? First, you know, like with really understanding that this was what you wanted to tackle this segment to then progressing from like a service-based business to like an actual product or platform-based business. Our first company was so simple. It was an engineering services company. We were undergrads. We had no idea what we were doing. We just knew that we wanted to avoid taking jobs at the companies that we had done those internships at. So we took my living room, uh, this house that I was renting just off campus, and every day we would use this living room space. We transformed it. We put a bunch of uh, fold-out tables in it, just a bunch of chairs, and we would do either homework, you know, working on our, our, our coursework and classes uh, in there, or you'd go into the other room where we had some other tables set up, and that was where our business was. And our business, by the way, was pretty simple. My job was to network, starting with the university, which was my only network, um, and meet as many people as possible, tell them that I wanted to do, I wanted to build, you know, use technology to build products and services, whatever that meant. And do you have any work for us? And they would introduce us to other business owners or people that were doing research at the university. And we eventually built this network of people that were willing to pay us, you know, minimum wage or maybe a little better uh, to work on some R&D projects or some little things that were sitting on a shelf. And we did everything. We said yes to everything. So for the first two years, the business was me going out and trying to win work, which would have been, you know, building a website, doing some custom electronics. Uh, we did a lot of technical writing. Uh, we did a lot of uh, patents. We worked on a lot of intellectual property. Um, we did stuff that was decidedly very tech oriented and then some work that was pretty far afield from it. But we sunk our teeth into the work. We loved the process of learning and iterating through it. And we, you know, every day we'd come home and you just basically had to decide which, which of the rooms were you going to walk into, the business room or the homework room. And over time, it was clear just based on where we were spending all of our physical time, we were much more interested in the business than we were our classes. And so we started migrating more and more of our time into the business, but there was still something missing. We were doing all this work for other companies, for other researchers, for other people, helping them take their ideas to market. And what we wanted to be doing was taking our own ideas to market. The problem was we, we didn't have any ideas. So I actually turned to uh, our family members. We all have family that are in dentistry and in the dental industry, including my sister, who's a dentist. And so we started actually trying to develop 
products that would be our own intellectual property related to the dental industry. We saw that dental was this big, valuable, but very fragmented and under-innovated market. And we saw that that market probably had value locked inside of it that just no one else was focused on extracting. And, and our intuition was right. What we saw in the early days was that uh, Beam, which we initially styled as a vendor, a, uh, a company that would build technology for large dental insurance companies, could actually itself become a dental insurance company. And so without knowing it, we had created actually one of the first insurtech businesses uh, that now seems super obvious. But back in 2012, 2013, when we started Beam, we actually didn't, the phrase insurtech didn't exist. And we didn't know uh, day one that it was even possible to build an insurance company from scratch. So then for the people that are listening, Alex, what is the what ended up being the business model of Beam that uh, everyone knows today? We started Beam as a uh, the, the building the industry's first and only dental wellness program. And so the way we thought of it was basically that dental insurance companies don't have very much and very good data about who's most likely to go to the dentist and what services are they going to need when they do go to the dentist. And so we built a wellness program that would focus on preventative care such that people would A, get the products they need, toothbrushes, toothpaste, floss, et cetera, to have good preventative care. That means hopefully fewer visits to the dentist over time and you don't need a bunch of root canals. That would be the idea. And then paired with that would be technology via an IoT solution, which was the brush, the beam brush, which pulls in data about the usage of the brush. And we thought that data could be used in the context of underwriting. If people are taking great care of their teeth every day, it's less likely that they're going to need a bunch of intensive dental work done over a long period of time. And so that was the really uh, originally the basis of the business. Then when we realized that the whole industry really needed to digitize itself uh, to be able to even work with a company like Beam, we decided to just solve the problem ourselves by building our own digitally native dental insurance company from scratch. So today, Beam works with employers from uh, two people all the way up to 2,000 people and everything in between. And we bring them a best-in-class, totally unique, digital-first dental insurance solution. And then we also do some other employee benefits like vision insurance, life, and disability as well. And in your case, I mean, as you were alluding to it, it was like a first-timer, you know, for someone to do something like this. So I'm sure that reaching product market fit was kind of a beast, you know, to really accomplish. So what was that process like? And, and when did you realize, hey, I think that we got something here? It was a brutal process and it almost took us out of business, actually. So we had built the uh, the kind of first version of the business, the wellness program, and we raised some venture capital uh, to help support our expansion into dental insurance. It's complicated. There's a department of insurance in every single state. So if you want to uh, operate an insurance company, you have to become accepted by the department of insurance. And so this was like a very binary bet. If the department of insurance said we couldn't enter a state and we needed at least one, uh, then we couldn't even legally market our policies and the business would be over. And so we had done all this work with uh, the uh, Series A that we had raised to build all of the infrastructure, all the software to support billing and invoicing and enrollments and claims processing, all of the necessary pieces of the puzzle. But we were burning capital every month, of course, and no other investor was going to invest 
in what needed to be the Series B until we had some sort of sales traction, traction and product market fit. The problem was there was no Department of Insurance that had said, yes, you can come market in our state yet. And so we uh, were, this was 2014, we were within about 30 days of running out of money when the Department of Insurance in California said, yes, you can enter the state and begin marketing. So at that point, the business had to do a, a layoff of over uh, two-thirds of our employees wow. to just have enough money to survive the period of time from when the Department of Insurance said, yes, you can begin marketing to actually then sell some policies and show some early traction. And it was a brutal process doing a riff. Um, I was actually technically fired from being the CEO for a while. I had to kind of climb back in the good graces of our board of directors. And we had to show that Beam deserved to, to live and that we really had built a solution that was different and better than what the industry had at the time. Luckily, we built some phenomenal relationships with broker partners and distributors. Small businesses everywhere started buying Beam as a clearly differentiated product to the Delta Dentals and the other products out uh, in the market for small businesses uh, at the time. And the company just took off. And so we ended up selling about 10,000 policies within that first year. That allowed us to raise the next round of capital. And just before our plane hit the ground, we were able to pull it up. And, uh, and now Beam has 260 employees. We're operating in 42 states around the U.S. and growing incredibly quickly. I'm sure that that experience for you, especially the layoffs, I mean, obviously that was, I'm sure, you know, a really tough um, part of the journey for you. But, you know, like anything, no, on those difficult situations is where there's lessons learned, no, uh, lessons to be learned. So what, what was for you probably the main lesson, you know, to be learned? And, and then also what, what, what did you do to keep pushing yourself during those dark days? I think the biggest thing I learned was how to be a better partner to our board, our investors, and just the folks around us. You know, I always viewed it. And I don't, I don't know, you know, we're first time founders. So, you know, we were in business just ourselves, the three of us originally. And so I'd never had a board before. And I don't, I don't know why I thought that the way that I thought at the time, but, you know, I, I viewed the board as a, uh, and, and our investors as a, not an actively adversarial relationship, but I viewed it very skeptically. I always wanted to give just enough information, uh, but not too much. Uh, because I didn't want anybody to know what my real plan was. And it, and it seems so ignorant now in retrospect, but at the time I felt like there was a ton of strategy behind how I was communicating to the board. But, you know, I really needed to become, and I did become a completely different type of leader uh, because of that experience, which was, I realized, because I had to realize this, that I wasn't bringing my key partners in and showing them the problems and allowing them to help me guide the company through uh, adversity and guide the company through the, the toughest days. Instead, I was actually creating skepticism from them by not letting them fully in the door, showing them only what I wanted them to see. And so even though it was obvious that the company wasn't going well back then, uh, I didn't appear to either understand that that was true or I was actively subverting the process instead of being transparent and open about it. 
So I've really taken that to heart and made it my exact leadership style where whether it's our board and investors, uh, the market, uh, my uh, management team, or just our all of our employees in a broad sense, we communicate frequently, openly, and very transparently because I want hundreds of people helping me solve these tough problems. And step one is knowing what the tough problems are. And so we're very communicative and collaborative at Beam because I've seen what it looks like when you aren't communicative and collaborative. And I've seen how beneficial it is to have that transparency iterated throughout the business. So I, I think that's like for sure the biggest thing I learned through that period of time. That's amazing. You know, there's a lot of times that you see it where entrepreneurs, you know, like have that mentality too, you know, and I think that it's, it's, it's really learning the dynamics, you know, and also how to, how to leverage your, your board to your advantage so that you can push together. And that you see that a lot on boards where it's more rather than discussing and figuring out how to resolve a strategic issues, it becomes more like a reporting, you know, and, and that's it, you know, kind of, um, kind of dynamic, which, which ends up being very toxic. Would you say that, that, you know, perhaps, you know, that was a, a shift, you know, as well that you guys experienced? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, entrepreneurs uh, often become entrepreneurs because they don't fit well within the system or the infrastructure, or they want to actively rebuke the system. And so, and, and I'm, and I'm exactly the same way. I mean, that's, I think what we observed, uh, my co-founders and I, we observed when we were in engineering school was that, you know, all this uh, bureaucracy and infrastructure and how these big businesses operate is really unattractive. And so we have a bit of that rebel streak in us for sure. And so ironically, in order to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to accept that, that system again. And there's ways you can make it work for you and be very thoughtful about how you construct your, your board, for example, and how they can be strategic thinking partners instead of just, uh, to your point, folks that you report some numbers to and, and then everybody goes home. And that is, I think, advice I'm constantly, I find myself giving to other founders and entrepreneurs that I know because many of us come from a world where you're trying to get away from the infrastructure of a thing like a board of directors. And what I've found is that by fully embracing it, but trying to make it uh, work for me instead of turned into that you know, that tension or that adversarial relationship, it's actually been hugely valuable to beam success and growth over the past few years. And how much capital have you guys raised to date? We've raised around $170 million all in, uh, which is, you know, something we're really proud of in general as a, as a business. But here in the Midwest, we're based in Columbus, Ohio, uh, $170 million is, is incredible. And, and we're seeing actually more and more businesses based in not California, New York, Boston, Seattle, uh, that are raising big rounds and building big successful businesses. So it's also a really fun time to be doing what we're doing in a place like Ohio. And do you think that um, you know it has gotten a little bit a little bit easier over time? I mean, how how has it been that transition of going from one financing cycle to another? Because obviously, as we've heard, you know, you had the C to Series A, then Series A, you had like a big breakdown and then you know you continued from that until you know you raised the capital the 170 million that that you've raised in total today so how has been you know that progression from cycle to cycle 
Well, I think, you know, Beam's lucky in that the business has continued to perform and grow and develop uh, really quickly. So we've had access to capital and we haven't had, you know, any other moments like that, like that one that almost took us out completely as a company. But, you know, I'm also the type of person that's very uncomfortable with uh, somebody else's money. Uh, And so investors are, you know, of course, seeking a return and we're using the capital the way we should be to help grow and develop the business really quickly. Um, but, you know, we're culturally, we're the type of people that, you know, we don't uh, come from money and we're very uncomfortable owing someone something. Yeah. And so we're waking up every day uncomfortable with a sense of urgency and really trying, you know, like very tenaciously working to build the company as quickly as possible and really build something special in our market. Uh, because, of course, we want to give our investors an incredible return and we will. Uh, but we also want to build a business that can stand the test of time and, you know, profitability and not being addicted to all that venture capital is an important component of it. So I think we've been a little bit more uh, profitability focused than many other businesses and we'll continue to be thoughtful and strategic with capital. But, uh, you know, we feel like we're just in an incredible position today. Uh, We raised an $80 million round just at the beginning of this year, led by Mercado Partners out of Salt Lake City and uh, they're a phenomenal partner, and it's been a great ride. And in terms of uh, size, so that the people you know can can hear it, you know, and and get a better sense for the scope of 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 Beam today. How big is the company? I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else? Yeah, sure. So starting back in those living room days with three of us, we are now two hundred and seventy. Wow. We'll go to three hundred uh, this year at Beam, so we'll we'll cross three hundred employees. Um, we've gone from that first state, which was California, to now operating in, I think, 42 states around the U.S. So employers in 42 states are actively buying Beam policies, which uh, is really exciting. Um, and the company has tripled in um, uh, revenues, have tripled uh, in membership over the past two years. So we've seen just really rapid growth in our solution being not just different, but better uh, the easiest in the uh, market to work with, um, the smartest uh, underwriting models in dental insurance, and with that preventative focus, the toothbrushes, et cetera, we have a really unique solution that employers love distributing as an employee benefit to their uh, to their teams. So imagine, Alex, that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later. Imagine, tremendous news. You've never slept like this in your life, right? And you wake up in a world where the vision of Beam is completely realized? What does that world look like? Beam at its terminus or at scale, I think has completely revolutionized how the dental industry works. We really started the business because we learned um, not just that dentistry is really fragmented, but that I think the fact that really stuck with us is that 100 million Americans don't have dental insurance. So there's a huge uninsured population, which means when those 100 million people need dental services, they're paying for them out of pocket and dent and dentists aren't cheap. And so, you know, that means that often people just don't get care and they're living in, in pain because they have an abscess tooth or they don't get, you know, cleanings for years and years because they either don't have the money or it's, uh, or there's some sort of, you know, kind of inconvenience to not having that coverage already built. So we think similar to health insurance with the affordable care act, which focuses on getting every American coverage of some type, um, or 
coverages like auto insurance, where you legally have to have auto insurance if you're going to drive a car, um, you know, dental insurance is not really subject to that same level of uh, legislation interest. So we're trying to get more people coverage the old-fashioned way, which is by building building a compelling product that you want to own because you're going to get value for it. And similar to any other financial service, people will purchase a financial service if it has some sort of value or return to it. And so we think, you know, Beam has this unique opportunity and five years from now will certainly be there, uh, we hope, to totally revolutionize via our technology the value proposition of dental insurance at its core such that every American has it, whether it's through Beam or another provider, we think will be, you know, the iconic uh, category winner of dental insurance over the coming years. And imagine if I have the opportunity of putting into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you to that time where you were still in university meeting your co-founders and maybe thinking about something that you would do, something that you would bring to life. And you had the opportunity of going back in time and assuming that, uh, assuming that, that you know, younger Alex is going to be listening, you, know, you basically are able to give yourself one piece of advice before launching a, co a company. So based on what you know now, what would that be that one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? I've learned so much about leadership over the past few years and just how much it transforms a business when there's a when there's a real when there's a real investment in culture. Uh, if I were starting a new business today or going back to the very beginning, the intentionality of culture is something that I think I arrived at over time. But in the earliest days, we had a ton of intentionality because we were uh, my co-founders and I were such great friends and we had built such strong a, such a strong relationship before we ever started a business together. And it would be amazing to be able to replicate that level of relationship and multiply it throughout the whole team the whole time. So today, when we're investing deeply in our culture, both articulating our culture and then reforming it or refining it over time, we're almost playing catch up. Uh, my goal is to go back to just the three of us in that living room and trying to figure out how to replicate the feeling that I had when it was just the three of us uh, is really what. I think a great culture in my view uh, would be because it, it works so well back then. And getting it, of course, to multiply to 300 people is, is impossible, but that's what we're going for. And so I think if I go back to those days, what I would be advising myself to do is be really intentional about the first five employees, the first 10, the first 50, to really create that uh, intentionality around that living room culture that we had built. So that way the whole company scales with a level of thoughtfulness and a level of transparency that we only later came to. I love it. And Alex, one book that you wish you would have read sooner, which one would that be and why? No Rules Rules. It's a new book, so I'd have to take that in the time machine with me. Reed Hastings from Netflix, uh, yeah. latest book. And it's a phenomenal kind of undressing of the Netflix culture and how they went from their living room effectively to the Netflix way now on a global scale. And it's something that I think it just it plays out a ton of corollaries and has great advice on exactly some of the topics we've touched on today. That's great. And for the folks that are listening, Alex, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? 
my email's fro, F-R-O, at beam.dental. Uh, you can find Beam Dental on Twitter, LinkedIn. We hang out on LinkedIn a lot, actually, uh, since we're working with employers. Uh, but we would, we would love to chat anytime. Amazing. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.